Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crime. I am your slightly ill host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Warren Moore. Uh, so before you wonder what the illness is, I will channel my inner Arnold and tell you it's not the virus. But I held off on recording this until I absolutely was up against the time, and uh, here we are. Hopefully you can understand me. Uh, Warren, our guest, is an interesting cat because he is a professor of literature and a bit of a headbanger. So if that sounds interesting to you, then you're going to be in for a fun ride on this episode. Uh, before we get to Warren, I want to say that I hope you are healthy and safe uh, and uh, doing everything you can to uh, ride out this strange time that we're in. Also want to let you know that Down Out Books is our sponsor, and here to let us in on what uh, is coming out in the month of March is Lance Wright. Well, hey Lance, welcome to the show. Thanks, Frank. Always glad to be here. So are you self-isolating and staying safe in these crazy times? Of course. I didn't know I was always a social distancer, but I really like that term. It explains so much about me. Well, I'm currently six feet from the microphone, so I'm practicing it even, even as we speak. So what, uh, what, uh, what does Down and Out Books have in store for us in the month of March? Well, it's been a busy spring so far. Here are the highlights from a couple of titles from March. We opened with the publication of The Lantern Man by John Bassoff, a cross-genre book that defies easy categorization. Written in a most unusual format, James Grady called it a landmark novel that will make you wonder, marvel, and remember. Next up is The Swamp Killers, a novel in stories edited by Sarah Chen and Ed Amar. The contributor list includes a stellar lineup of authors, including Hilary Davidson, J.J. Hensley, Jenny Milchman, Alan Orloff, Art Taylor, Wendy Tyson, and many more. This is Sarah and Ed's second collaborative effort after last year's well-received, The Night of the Flood. Sounds like a couple of great reads. Um, I uh, actually have had both Sarah M. Chen and Ed on the show, so I got to meet them, and uh, uh, great people. Good, good. Uh, nice to have them part of the Down and Out family. Uh, I will point out that another part of the family is the uh, Grifter subfamily, and uh, Holly West's uh, episode of A Grifter's Song, episode 9, The Money Block, came out this month, and uh, it's pretty stellar. Yeah, we are very, very excited about this, this, uh, this series, and as a reminder, the individual episodes can be purchased separately, or... You can get a discount by purchasing a subscription to the entire season at downandoutbooks.com slash bookstore. Now, the cool thing about the subscription is that there's a price break there, and uh, there's also a bonus episode that is subscriber only. And particularly this season, I can promise you that there are secrets that are revealed in the bonus episode that you won't get anywhere else. Well, since I haven't read the bonus episode yet, I am looking forward to that. Uh, well, th thanks for uh, the update, uh, Lance, and uh, stay stay safe, stay, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you in April. You too. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Lance. 
let's check in with Warren, who, like I mentioned, is a uh, professor of literature and uh, also uh, super into the kind of music you wouldn't expect from a professor of literature. Uh, I first met him in St. Petersburg at the uh, BoucherCon. Uh, we had kind of an interesting meeting, uh, and uh, I, I found him to be a nice guy, and uh, and I guess I'm saying interesting a lot, but uh, he was interesting, uh, so that's why I asked him to come on the show. Uh, let's find out if I'm right, and he actually is interesting to you. Uh, here's Warren Moore. Well, hey, Warren, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Frank. Uh, we actually met, uh, I believe, in St. Petersburg at BoucherCon uh, in 2018, I think it would have been. That's uh, correct, and, I, and I'm still grateful for the breakfast. That's right. That's right. I got uh, free breakfast for two with my, uh, with my lodging there, and uh, I was solo, so you, you got to be my plus one. Always a winner. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you are... Uh, the author of Broken Glass Waltzes, and I do want to talk about that because it's it's a pretty cool um, mashup of uh, heavy metal, mystery, and uh, and the setting that you chose. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, you you don't have the typical day job as a lot of the writers that I talk to. That's that's true. I mean, I've done a lot of different things along the way. Um, actually, when I when I wrote most of Broken Glass Waltzes, I was working as a magazine editor in Cincinnati. But um, in, in recent years, um, and quite a few of those recent years actually, I've been an English professor in, in Newberry, South Carolina at Newberry College. Um, my specialties are creative writing, medieval literature, and um, a little bit of just kind of discussions of evil and how we understand it in our culture. Well, certainly anybody can see the tie-in then to crime fiction. Right. Yeah, it's, it's funny because... Um, when I was working on my master's, I didn't think I was going to be a medievalist, and I had just discovered the old Black Lizard reprints and had fallen in love with um, crime fiction, and um, I had actually looked at doing my graduate work focusing on that, but I actually wound up wandering into um, medieval morality plays, and I kind of came to the conclusion that what I was really kind of fascinated by was how we understand the awful things that people do to themselves and one another across time periods. So, you know, I, I occasionally joke that what I am is a literary homardiologist, which is to say someone who studies sin. Well, and crime fiction is a genre that, uh, uh, that really is very similar. I mean, science fiction and crime fiction both seem to really explore social issues, particularly along those lines. Oh, absolutely. And I've actually written both. I've really kind of got into the creative writing scene during my master's years. Um, I knew I knew somebody who had a small science fiction magazine, and I started doing some writing for that. Uh, I'm, I'm basically a third-generation science fiction reader. But um, again, as the years went by, I kind of found myself drawn more toward crime fiction. And that's that's certainly been one of my big interests as I've been writing. While I was working in the magazine business, I kind of got away from the creative stuff for a little while. And then when I was working on my PhD at Ball State University, um, th that was kind of when I went back to writing, uh, writing kind of noirish and hard-boiled type stuff. Do you think there's a lot of crossover between crime fiction readers and science fiction readers uh, for that reason? Or do you think they're, they're usually I very separate peoples? 
Um, I don't know if there's a ton of crossover, but I, I mean that I, I know I know that there there is some. I mean, yeah, like I said, I I read both. Uh, my my father read both. Um, I I know that Lawrence Block is a is a pretty big fan of science fiction, or at least he was once upon a time. And you know, certainly you don't have better crime fiction cred than him. So um, I I think yeah. I also think that if you go back to like the 50s and the early 60s, some of those guys like you know. Larry or Harlan Ellison or Bob Silverberg, you know, a, a lot of those guys who were basically just trying to, you know, write to put food on the table. Yeah, you know, there was a fair amount of crossover in terms of the writers, so I wouldn't be terribly surprised if there was some crossover on the readership side as well. Well, I suppose it depends on what attracts you to the genre. Like if if what attracts you to science fiction is the fantastical parts of it, maybe the crossover wouldn't occur. But if it's the human morality play that's just done against, uh, you know, a, a safer setting for people to examine it in. Uh, sure. Then those are the types of people I would think that would potentially be drawn to crime fiction. Yeah, I I, I think I think it's kind of interesting the the idea of sort of the, the safer setting. Um, I, you know, I, I think that um, when you're when you're dealing with SF, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of arm's length that's involved in that. Um, a story I wrote many years ago that um, never got published actually was um, it, it was it was a crossover story, um, basically written as a hard boiled detective novel, but in a sort of science fiction dystopian setting, not not in a Blade Runner kind of a way. It really had more to do with Soylent Green than anything, but um. It was or make room, make room to go back to the actual print source by Harry Harrison, but um, for for me, it didn't seem like anything outrageous, and um, you know, I, I've I've gotten decent responses from the from the old SF stuff that I wrote, um, but you know, the, these days, as I said, my my inclination is much more toward crime fiction. Well, and that's what led you to 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 write Broken Glass Waltzes, which I alluded to in the introduction, and. And this is a book that, uh, I mean, chapter one starts at a, you know, heavy metal club concert and, uh, it, uh, it starts off with a bang, so to speak. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess in more than one, in more than one sense, but, um, yeah, um, it, it's funny. I, wh- where that book kind of came from, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd played in a variety of unsuccessful bands during my um, undergrad and grad school years and hung out a lot at places like Andrew's, the, the bar in the, in the opening of Broken Glass Waltzes that's based pretty closely on an actual kind of hard rock club there on the outskirts of Cincinnati. This, Like I said, this was while I was working on my master's. I was driving around and I was listening to the punk rock band The Misfits, um, who, you know, they, they were pretty influential on later kind of thrash metal. Metallica, Metallica is made up of big Misfits fans, for example. And um, I was listening to their song, Die, Die, My Darling, and all of a sudden I just got this vision of a scene that winds up being kind of the key scene in Chapter 10. And I turned my car around, drove home, wrote that, and I was like, okay, I've got this scene. How do I get there? And then I had to write 10 chapters to get there. And so, uh, mm. you know, that's just kind of how the book fell together. So this is a, a kind of a protagonist meets femme fatale sort of setup. Is it is does that how is that how it pays off? Yeah, I, I described I described it to people as sort of um, Jim Thompson listening to Metallica, or um, you know, which, which 
Jim Thompson, like I said, I discovered him um, you know, late to the party as usual, but I discovered him in the 80s, and um, that was also when I was listening to a whole bunch of loud and fast music. And so you know, for, for me, that was like some sort of um, creative Reese's Cup or something, you know, two great tastes that taste great together. And so um, it was just, you know, it was, it, was very, it was a very natural fit for me to kind of t- take this sort of loud, fast, socially fringy kind of music and, and mix it in with, with a kind of traditional noir. Um, in fact, as I, as I was writing it, I, I think, I think part, part of what I did by setting it in the heavy metal field, had I been around in the, in the 40s or 50s, you know, Kenny would probably have been a jazz musician, but by the time I was writing this, and certainly now, jazz, you know, th- that stuff you hear on NPR, and it, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of mainstream. I mean, I do listen to a certain amount of jazz as, as a drummer. I'm kind of required to, but, um, you know, at, at the same time, I, I basically kind of saw my choices. I, I needed music that was, like, appropriately seedy, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so my, my choices were basically metal, punk, or hip-hop, and I happened to know more about metal than I knew about the other two. So that, that was pretty much what I went with. Well, the 80s was a, a high-water mark for, for heavy metal. I mean... Oh, absolutely. The, it was... The, All the hair bands. And, mm-hmm. So who were you listening to? Who were your big ones? Um, the bands I was listening to the most back then, um, Michael Schenker, um, particularly the incarnation of the Macaulay Schenker group, which... My first national publication was for a spin-off magazine of Cream. I did a review of Michael Schenker's first album, and um, they promptly went bankrupt and never paid me. First lesson of the music journalism business, kids, get paid up front. But, um, you know, I, 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 was, I was listening to a lot of Schenker. I was listening to Danzig. I was listening to um, the first album from the Masters of Reality, a fair amount of Anthrax, uh, Motorhead, of course. Um, so, you know... I, I I wasn't I wasn't really that much into the into the glammy end of it as much as I was the mm-hmm. the more aggressive stuff at the time. So where would Motley Crue and Ozzy fall in that pantheon for you? Crue was was actually a little a little tamer. It, it was it was a little tamer than most of what I was listening to. I, I I thought those guys were a little glammy. Ozzy, you know, I've got worlds of respect for Sabbath, but I actually preferred Sabbath with Dio. Than I did the, the the stuff with Ozzy because I I just think Ronnie James Dio was such an amazing singer, and, and you know Ozzy tends to go flat a lot. But um, most of the bands that were getting shows though, you know the, the bands that I wasn't in and the bands that were actually making some money were uh, were were the bands that were prettier and um, you know more more into the makeup and spandex thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've 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 always been been a bit of a bit of a weirdo, and I guess that kind of applied to my musical choices too. Yeah, you know, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I was about five degrees off of whatever was popular, and you know, part part of it too is it, it might have been because I was yeah I was hanging around, I was hanging around with a bunch of other musicians, and mm-hmm. um so, and so you know, for for us the stuff like you know the Mob Rules album and Heaven and Hell and um, Live Evil, you know th- those those were all yeah, you know, it, it it just it just seemed like the playing was better. Uh, you know, the, the 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 songs weren't as iconic, but you know, as as a band and as as the vocals kind of fitting into the band, that kind of thing worked for us a, a little better than the stuff with Ozzy did. The Mob Rules couldn't have been 
too horrible to, I mean, that made, made its way into the first heavy metal movie, right? <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, with, with John Candy playing Den of Earth. So um, <laughs> that was a cool show. We loved that show. I mean, it, oh, absolutely. It, HBO had it and it was like the coolest thing in the world to see all these songs and this you know, fantastical things going on. Uh, and, you know, the, fun, the funny thing about that movie, Blue Oyster Cult, which is another of my favorite bands, and, they, you know, they pop up a lot in the novel. Um, BOC was supposed to have done most of the soundtrack for heavy metal, and they, they, they didn't wind up doing most of it, but um, the, the album Fire of Unknown Origin um, has several tracks that were supposed to have been part of the heavy metal soundtrack. Huh, um, I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah, Ven- Vengeance the Pact, and... Um, there, there were there were a couple. Um, I think there was supposed to be. A, I think they actually did part of like Veterans of the Psychic Wars, and um, yeah, there were there were several tracks off off that album that were that had originally been intended for the for the heavy metal movie. Huh. I didn't know that. Veteran of a Thousand Psychic Wars is a pretty cool song. Man. I think Mike Moorcock um, actually wrote the lyrics to that one. Oh really? Elf. Yeah, and well, and you know he did Black Blade too. Uh huh. Because that's those, based on the Elric stories. Right, Elric of Melnibene. Um, you know, here you are, a, a literature professor, uh, South Carolina College, and you're a total mm-hmm. metalhead. <laughs> oh, yeah, very much so. I'll, I'll, you know, it, it's funny, my, my students, um, you know, they, they basically know I'm in my office if there's some, some sort of weird, obnoxious sound coming out of there, whether it, you know, whether it's Hard, hard stuff for like early six or early seventies heavy, heavy psych or something I've listened to a lot in recent years is like sixties garage punk and early psychedelia. So you know, basically they know that they're not going to know whatever whatever's coming out, but that yeah, they they know I'm there because the music's coming out. So <laughs> the doctor is in because he's rocking out. <laughs> yes, and I have the hearing loss to prove it. <laughs> Uh, when you played in bands as a drummer, were those the kind of bands that you played in? Most of the bands I played in tended toward original music, actually. So, um, you know, it, it was it was more like we were trying to operate in that vein, but we but we were writing our own stuff typically. And, you know, I I was writing a lot of lyrics, and um, but yeah, there there, were, there was always kind of a you know we 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 kind of saw BOC as a sort of thing to shoot for, although given. Given our limited equipment, we finally came to the conclusion that BOC actually stood for beyond our capabilities. But um, <laughs> maybe but, you just yeah, needed you know, some cowbell. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. That that would have been the that would have been the secret. Uh, you know, funny thing, Albert Bouchard, is the, who was the drummer for um, BOC up until he left during the tour that got commemorated as Extraterrestrial Live. But um, I, I, th- I think Al Bouchard may be one of the most underrated drummers in rock and roll. He, he, he's a brilliant player. He's still around, by the way. He's playing in a group with, with his brother Joe, who was the original bass player for BOC. And um, one of the guys who was in the original Alice Cooper band, and they, 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 have, a, they have a group called Blue Coop. So all of this experience, uh, a wealth of it, it sounds like, found its way into Broken Glass Waltzes. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, much more experience on the musical end than say the um, debauchery and murder end, but that's probably just as well now that I stop and think about it. <laughs> yeah, not many rock and roll stars age gracefully. Only a few. <laughs> uh, 
But, uh, you know, you're not just a novelist. You've dabbled quite a bit uh, in other forms of writing. You mentioned doing uh, music reviews, working as a music critic. Uh, right. And, and then you've written short stories, too. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, in fact, um, you know, Broken Glass Waltzes originally got published in 2013. And um, and that was Snubnose Press? Yeah, that, that was with Snubnose, although Down and Out was gracious enough to kind of rescue it from the orphanage and bring it back out in 2017. Mm -hmm. So it is available from your favorite bookseller. But, you know, once that, once that came out, I, I kind of decided, okay, you know, nothing succeeds like encouragement. And so I, I kind of start, I, I got back into doing more creative work, but because of sort of the demands of school and my personal life and all that, um, I've, I've mainly worked in, in short fiction over the last few years. And blogging, you blog pretty regularly. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I I started I started the blog back in 2010. Um, the deal on this, um, my mother and father were murdered in 2009 um, by my brother, who um, had had a number of issues, as you might deduce. Yeah, when you told me that over breakfast, uh, yeah, in, in 2018, I was just, I mean, I had to put my fork down. It's, uh, uh, I realize it's such a, you know constant event in your life that you can say it that that uh, directly and and everything but uh when when someone hears that for the first time it it takes you aback for sure oh absolutely uh for for me like i said my, my folks were killed in the summer of 09 and um the trial didn't happen until 2013 because um there, there were various issues with um, lab testing and stuff in Kentucky. There, there was only the one state forensics lab, and so, you know, long delays and that sort of thing. But um, basically, I, I started writing the blog more or less as therapy, something to kind of, from time to time, take my mind off everything else that was going on. And it, it wound up being really useful for me in terms of kind of reminding me that I do enjoy writing, and um, it was it was fairly easy to kind of, move from that to doing creative work again. Uh, and yet you've kept it up. You're still doing it. I think, I mean, I think I saw an entry today or yesterday. Yep. Yep. Uh, put, put one out, put one out today and that uh, already got one ready for tomorrow. But um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't blog quite as frequently as I used to for the first, I don't know, the first three or four years, probably um, I did at least one post a day Um these these days it's probably closer to one or two a week. I needed the therapy more when I first started, so you know, in in some ways, you know, the the fact that I don't have quite the same compulsion to distract myself from the rest of the world is a good thing. <laughs> well, you are distracting yourself though. Uh, you're just doing it with uh, creative fiction with short stories. Yes, and the and the upside is I get paid for those. So um, <laughs> the the work I'm doing now, both 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 on the blog and and with the stories, it's um, it, it it is personal. I mean, I had a story that came out um, late last fall, early this winter, in um, from Sea to Stormy Sea. Um, that was it, it's from a series of anthologies that Lawrence Block has put together, where the various writers take paintings and. Um, use those to kind of inspire stories. And um, the theme for this particular volume, I'd been in a couple of the previous ones, um, the theme for this for that this particular volume was um, artists from the United States. And um, I happened to have a painting that my father did. My, my, my dad, both my parents were art majors in high school. That's how they met. And I happened to have this painting of my dad's. And um, 
I, I show, showed it to, to Larry, and he was like, yeah, that'll work. And I, I, so what I wound up writing was you know, something that I guess is sort of mainstream. It's not, not especially genre, but uh, it, it just, you know, it, it was a story about fathers and sons, and um, you know, I, was quite, I was quite pleased with it. Well, that's not the only Lawrence Block edited anthology that you've been in or will be in. You've got another one uh, coming up here pretty shortly. Indeed, I do. Um, in, in May, uh, Larry's anthology, The Darkling Halls of Ivy, um, which is stories uh, with an academic theme, um, that, that'll be coming out. Subterranean is putting out the limited edition, and then Larry is self publishing the trade paperback and ebook versions. But um, yeah, they're all stories that have some sort of connection to academia. So, you know, for some reason, I guess he thought I was a pretty good fit for that and asked me if I could come up with something. That's a bit of a stretch for you. I mean, I know it. I know it. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of funny. The story that I've got it's it's a story called Alt Act A L T hyphen A C, which stands for Alternative to Academia, and it's a story that deals with the with what we laughably call the job market in academia these days, which. For those of us in the humanities, English, history, um, philosophy, religion, you know, there are very, very few tenure-track jobs left. Um, sometimes I kind of wonder if I might not be part of the last generation of the tenure-track professoriate. Um, it is extremely difficult to get a tenure-track job in the field anymore. You know, we, we have this really large supply of people with PhDs and not enough jobs for them, and so I, I kind of use that as my inspiration, and what, one of the things people talk about is this whole alt-act track where you get your PhD but then do something else like work at a nonprofit or, or some deal like that. And um, I, I, ju I just kind of took that. Uh, I, I, took, I, I said it at a Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo because that happens to be the site of the International Congress for Medieval Studies, the, the largest um, conference in my field. And, uh, you know, you, you wind up with like hundreds, maybe even a couple of thousand medievalists. And um, you, they're, they're all, you're, you're doing a lot of networking, you're, you're presenting papers, and you're doing stuff like that. But there's also, you know, there's also that certain element of, of it being kind of a meat market. And, um, you know, you're there and you're, you're, you're having to be very careful because you never know if the person you're talking to might wind up being on a hiring committee that you need at some point. So I, I've certainly seen how the diminishing market has placed a lot of pressure on people uh, in, in the in the discipline and in the humanities in general, and it it kind of it kind of struck me as a pre pretty good a pretty good place to to drop a story. So if if in early May when the when the book comes out, there there's there's going to be a lot of good stuff in there. But I hope along the way you you know you might like my particular inside view of how things are looking in the discipline these days. You know, you're writing about something you know for sure. I mean, that's that that uh, is uh, usually lends itself to a very true story. One hopes. Uh, well, I will look for that when it comes out in May. And uh, I've only read the beginning of Broken Glass Waltzes uh, before we were able to talk, uh, but it sure does grab you right away. And uh, oh, thank you. Uh, I, I do like the setting, and and you said it in Cincinnati. That's uh, not a traditional crime fiction city by any means. Right. I'm, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because, um, granted, I, I, grew, I grew up over on the Kentucky side of the river, so the suburbs of Cincinnati. But, um, again, as I was kind of discovering crime fiction in my undergrad and first trip through grad school, 
one of the writers I found was Jonathan Valen, and uh, he, he created the Harry Stoner series of detective novels, which are set in Cincinnati. And for me to discover those, it was like, you know, because when, when, when you grow up someplace, and particularly when you're you know, a teenager or in, or in your early 20s, you think, oh, you know, everybody knows this place is nowhere. There are no, there are no interesting stories that can come from a place like this. But then when I, when I saw what, what Valen had done, um, you know, with the, with the Harry Stoner novels, it was like, well, no, uh, you, you know, the, this, yeah, it might, might have felt boring when I was working at Sears, but um, it's as good a place for bad things to happen as any. And um, so, yeah, it, again, it was, it was an area I knew, and I kind of knew, you know, I knew the bar scene, and I, I, knew, I knew the hard rock scene there. Um, the, band, the band that Kenny is in, was modeled somewhat on a band that was very, very popular, um, a, a cover band that was very, very popular on the scene back then. One of the things that pleases me is that a lot of people who were there um, look at the book and say, oh, yeah, you got it right. Um, really, really captured the moment. Yeah, and one, one of the things that tickles me, um, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister, some years ago, actually, before I ever got the book published, um, I, I knew that Dee did some writing, and I, I emailed him and, uh, and explained, you know, I've got this book. It's kind of set in the hard rock scene, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, would you like to read it? And he said, sure, send it on. And I did, and um, he, he wrote back and said, you know, you've really captured the rock and roll lifestyle. Not mine, thank God, but one. And, um, <laughs> yeah, if, if it could pass muster with, um, with D. Snyder, I figure, okay, that's, I got it right. Yeah, yeah. He didn't say he wasn't going to take it. He he took it. That's right. That's right. And sent me back a lovely note. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I went to command school uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. which is maybe what, 80, 80 miles. miles. Yeah. yeah. And uh, with a good, so there's a good number of cops from Cincinnati in that class. And I, we made mm-hmm. it up to Cincinnati a couple of times. My wife and I really enjoyed the zoo there, but. Um, oh, yeah. But I will tell you, in fact, I, I was surprised to find out it's like the third biggest zoo in the country or something like that. And supposedly the sexiest zoo in America. Um, <laughs> they, they, no, seriously, they, they had like really, really successful animal breeding programs there. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you know, Cincinnati's a, a neat town in a lot of ways. I mean, I haven't lived there in a long time now, but, um, you know, it, they're, they're, I still have a lot of friends up there and, um, you know, it, it's don't let the book scare you. It's a pretty cool place to visit. That being said, uh, you know, I could tell from, from the time I spent there and from the conversations I had with the other cops that uh, were in the class that it, it can be a tough town. And so oh, yeah. the things that go on in your book and the things uh, that go on in crime fiction in general, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be a fantasy uh, to say that, no. that stuff could happen. In, in well, I mean, the street on which I grew up, Okay, uh, which again in the in the in the suburbs in Kentucky, but my my dad worked downtown. I worked downtown. <sighs> yeah, there was my brother, obviously. Um, the kid across the street from us wound up um, being busted for having a rolling meth lab. The girl who grew up next door to us died of an OD a couple of years ago. A kid who a kid who ran around with with my brother. They were in the same classes and stuff. Um, is yeah, he is finishing up a, an 18-year jolt on a on a sexual offense, um, but at the same time, 
you know, I came from that neighborhood, and um, mm-hmm. you know, there there were girls up the street that I had crushes on who became nurses and first grade teachers and stuff like that. But it, you know, it, it it was a mix, and um, and like I said, at at first appearance, you you would expect more of the nurses and teachers and maybe the occasional professor than you would the other stuff. But you know, they were both there, and uh, I th- I think that I think that's true, probably of a lot of places. Well, it sounds like you captured that uh, location in that in that particular time really well. I look forward to giving that a, a more complete read. Uh, now that we're publishing Brothers at Down and Out, I uh, well, obligated. <laughs> I want to say thanks for coming on the show, Warren. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Frank. I've really been looking forward to this. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, hopefully you found that uh interesting <laughs> and uh enjoyed uh, hearing from warren like i said he's a different kind of cat uh not the kind of guy that you you'd expect when you when you look at him uh, uh if you google a picture of him you'll see he's a, a very big guy with a big beard and uh, uh kind of a, a kind of a warm look to him you kind of guy you wouldn't be afraid to talk to uh, despite his size uh and uh anyway i thought he had some cool stuff to say and uh, i enjoyed that interview quite a bit so thank you, Warren, for coming on the show, and thanks to Down Out Books for being a great sponsor, and uh, for Lance for giving us an in-person update. Uh, don't forget uh, Holly West's episode of Grifter's Song, The Money Block, is now available. Uh, and next episode is going to be something a little bit different. Uh, I did a joint interview with uh, John Hoda, and uh, the interview will be up on his podcast, and it'll be released on mine as well and uh he's an, an author and an investigator and uh he came up with this idea when we ran into each other at VoucherCon uh in dallas this last year uh and we got together and, and did it so it's kind of a different sort of approach and uh i think uh, it, it warrants a listen so that's next episode on wrong place or right crime until then this is frank zafiro reminding you that sometimes you gotta be in the wrong place to right crime